All right, well, good morning again, everybody. Um, such a privilege and a joy to be able to declare the Word of God and the Gospel of Grace to us this morning. I'd like to invite you to go ahead and turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Exodus 7, verses 1 through 13. It'll be uh, considerably shorter in terms of the passage compared to last week. We had quite a bit to cover. It'll be a shorter passage this week, although there is a lot, admittedly, a lot of meaty and deep content here for us to dive into. And as a reminder, last week, when we last saw both Moses and Aaron, they were feeling utterly unworthy at that point in chapter 6 to speak to Pharaoh. See, though they had already appeared before uh, Pharaoh's throne in the power of God Almighty, Pharaoh ended up laughing them right out of his court. And to add insult to injury, on top of that, he then conquered Pharaoh, that is, not just the morale of, uh, of Aaron and Moses, but also of the entire people of Israel in one fell swoop. And he did this by breaking their spirits through intensified slavery. But in the midst of their despair, God, as we saw last week, lovingly entered into his own people's trauma and betrothed himself to them by his loyal, unfailing, covenantal love. But here this morning in Exodus 7, for all, all for the praise of God's glorious grace and by his own matchless design, the Lord was about to now send these two essentially defeated outcasts back to Pharaoh yet again in order to proclaim the glory of his name and his saving power among the nations. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and come before God's word. Exodus chapter 7 Starting here in verse 1, the word of the living God says this to us. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But, here's one of our key verses, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Friends, this is the reading of God's word. 
forever holy and faithful and true and given to each one of us here in love. With this still fresh in our minds, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you that you have indeed given us your word, inspired, authoritative, sufficient for every single part of our lives. And we thank you, O Lord, that this passage is nothing short of that. We thank you, O God, that you have given us this time to come before you, to sit under the reading and the preaching of your word, that it might wash over us by the very power of you, our God, and so that your saving power might be known here in our midst and among our neighbors here in Lynchburg. And finally, the nations, O Lord. Lord, that is our heart's cry. And I pray, O Lord, that as I deliver your word this morning, that I, as your messenger, would get out of the way, and that you, O Lord, by your speaking ministry to us this morning, would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit through your powerful word. So I pray this all in your holy name. Amen. Well, friends, this morning I want us to see, I want us to see primarily that Exodus 7 displays God's glory to us. A very simple message, right? It displays God's glory to us. But it does this in such a way that we are made to boldly proclaim his saving power, not just here, but among the nations. So how does God then make his glory known to us here in our passage of Exodus 7? Well, I believe we see this in three specific ways. First, in how God prepared Moses and Aaron to be his prophets. Second, in how he ended up hardening Pharaoh's heart. Tough topic, of course. And thirdly, in how he turned staffs into serpents. So to that first point, verses 1 through 2, we first see that the Lord addressed Moses, saying these words, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Now that's confusing language, isn't it? You'll be like God to Pharaoh and Aaron will be your prophet? Something seems wrong with this. See, at first glance, we should be rightly confused by this statement. We know from Scripture elsewhere that there is, of course, only but one God, and that he dares not share his glory with any other. In fact, he cannot, and he will not. And yet here in our passage, he tells Moses in plain and simple language that he has been made like God to Pharaoh. So what does this mean exactly? Was God being inconsistent with the rest of his revealed word through Scripture? Was God saying that Moses would become like a demigod or like a superhero, like an avenger or something before Pharaoh and end up receiving worship from him? Absolutely not. Rather, there are two words that are extremely important right here before us in our text that we need to, and in fact, we must understand in order to rightly interpret this meaning. And those two words, as you can probably guess, are the two words, like God like God. But what does it mean to be like God? Well, there's a few answers here, right? So I think it's worth exploring the different options. The first option is what we see elsewhere in Scripture, like in Ephesians 5, where all of us as Christians are called to be imitators of God. We're called to be like God in one sense as his dearly loved children. And so each of us is called to be like God in the sense that we copy him, we, we imitate him, right? For instance, again, in Ephesians 5, it tells us this, that we are, as believers, to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But friends, this 
doesn't mean, of course, that we are actually Christ before others, like our text in Exodus 7 is implying. Rather, it means that we are, of course, called to be like Christ in his sacrificial, offertory, and self-giving love toward others. But as you can probably guess, that is not at all the meaning of this text, right? There's a different kind of copying or imitating or being like God here that God commands of Moses specifically. See, here in Exodus 7, he gave them a very special and unique kind of call. More than just mimicry or imitation, he gave them a commission, a calling. A commission, though, designated for a specific time to represent God as his prophets. So when God said that Moses would be like God, he meant that Moses was to represent the Lord's sovereign, saving power through signs and wonders, and, I think implicitly here in our text, to remain unmoved by Pharaoh's wily resistance. See, like God, Moses was to represent the Lord's sovereign power through these very things. And yet Aaron, we see in our text, was to have a somewhat lesser role. He was simply to display the working of God's power in both his speaking, but also his doing, again, as a kind of prophet. See, there's a very stark contrast that I think would be helpful for us to understand, though, as we discuss this idea of imitating versus doing, okay? The ancient Greeks, I believe, have, I think, a much, they had a much fuller understanding of these ideas of imitating and doing more clearly than we do in our own current day culture. Back then, a couple thousand years ago or so, they used two very important words, namely mimeo and poieo, to describe this kind of imitation or action. Mimeo means to mimic. It's where we get our word mime or mimicry from, right? Mimic, mimeo. And poieo means literally just to do or to make, but it's actually where we get our word poetry from. You know, to create something, to actually be about the good or, or the beauty of, of promoting something, actually doing and making something in a glorious way. Mimeo, to imitate, to copy. Poieo, to make or to even create. And so Moses and Aaron were not simply to imitate or mimic God, like we as Christians do. They weren't simply even called to imitate God's communicable divine attributes, things such as his love, goodness, and kindness, while demonstrating his holiness, wisdom, and purity before others. Rather, God had given them a very special call here in Exodus 7, that of doing or making, if that makes sense. See, rather, God had actually specially commissioned them to do his unique work of authoritatively calling out Pharaoh as his prophets, God's prophets. So we might be thinking at this point, well, what then is the primary role of a prophet, right? What differentiates Aaron and Moses from us as regular believers? Well, I think the key is right here in verse 2. See, a prophet is to primarily speak all that God commands on his behalf. Nothing more, nothing less. Verse 2 says this, You shall speak all that I command you. Not some, not more. All that I command you. 
And so a commissioned prophet of God didn't just mimic God's character. They didn't just imitate God. They proactively did the working of God as a vessel in the Redeemer's hands himself. This was the ministry of an Old Testament prophet. And a little trivia for you. Theology, really. In effect, their prophetic ministry was not at all that unlike those of the apostles later on under the New Covenant, prophets and apostles. See, for instance, in Matthew 18, verse 18, Jesus told his apostles, his sent out, his commissioned ones, he said this, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, literally in the Greek, shall have already been bound in heaven. That's God's work, not man's. And whatever you loose on earth shall have already been bound, or loosed rather, in heaven. And so it's really important for us to know that the ministry of the prophets under the Old Covenant and the apostles under the New, though as amazing as it sounds, was entirely unique to biblical times. Those roles are done, they're completed, and it was only there for God's redemptive purposes, all pointing us to Jesus himself. See, these offices then of prophet and apostle were only for an appointed time, and they do not continue on to this day, as unfortunately so many churches, even solid Bible-believing churches, believe. There are no modern-day prophets or apostles. See, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 tells us this much. Whereas God had previously given prophets to speak on his behalf with authority and power in their words, he has now given to us the final and the better and the true prophet himself, namely Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. God has not given us then modern-day apostles and prophets. Instead, God continues the same speaking ministry to his church. He doesn't stop speaking, right? But he speaks to us primarily through his word and through Christ, like Hebrews tells us. But he continues that ministry itself as he applies it to us onward in the scripturally rooted and Holy Spirit-led ministry of Christ, our true pastor, through his under-shepherds who teach and proclaim his word. So does this make then our experience of God's power anything less than the power that we see here in Exodus 7? No, absolutely not. See, if anything, it's quite the opposite. We actually experience God's power on this side of the cross because it becomes more routine, if anything, on this side of the cross in the life of the church. See, Christ's authority Christ, who already rules and reigns over us from his heavenly throne and his blessings over his church are made known to us as his word is rightly preached, as the sacraments are rightly administered. King Jesus, oh my goodness. kingly rule oh and reign in love through, catch this, oh teaching, biblical reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And it must be those things. We call it discipleship. See, this is routine. It's ordinary to us. That's why we don't see these big events anymore because it's happening in the life of the church even right now, even as we worship and fellowship with each other. And as a kingdom of priests unto our God, we actually have a greater privilege than Moses and Aaron did. We get to experience God's power on a more regular basis. We get to see his power in our acts of loving and serving 
forgiving and encouraging and teaching one another as Christ has commanded us to do through his word. And as we do this, we are then made to behold God himself all the more. And this can't help us but fill us with a sense of urgency and boldness and courage to actually go and fulfill his great commission. His commission to go and make disciples under Christ's authority and Christ's authority baptizing the nations and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus our Lord has commanded us. Um, you get the stuff off the shelf. For God's kingdom, I told you I can't live. Seems small. Get the compared to these mighty acts of power, but it is indeed like a seed with potency, a seed that has been planted in God's providence and has been purposed to shoot up through the ground at just the right time, and as this seed grows and expands as a plant into a tree even, it blesses all who partake of its fruit. Friends, that is what Christ has commissioned us with. And I'm convinced that God has purposefully planted us in downtown Lynchburg, and in our neighborhoods where we live, where we eat, where we play, wherever that might be for you. Here in downtown specifically, though, we can already see signs of his grace as individuals, one by one, whom God loves, are coming to a saving faith and knowledge in him. We're beginning to see the signs of this already. And as we grow like a vine along the trellis of God's word, we will indeed be all the more a blessing to our community up and down these streets to the glory of God. As we grow, though, my prayer is that we would become all the more a people guided by prayer. A people that echo back God's words to his own listening ears. A people that echo back words such as Psalm 67. A truly evangelistic psalm that says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why though? That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Well, friends, this leads us to then our second picture of God's glory on display here in our passage of Exodus 7. However, this is admittedly a very difficult picture for us to explore together this morning. Verses 1 and 2 were pretty easy, actually. Verses 3 through 7 deal with and display even God's glory by recognizing that he did this by hardening Pharaoh's heart. That is a sobering teaching from Scripture. See, God told Moses this, but I, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. My friends, though mysterious to us, God's divine purpose then here in our passage was to use Pharaoh to, as the Westminster Confession puts it, to the praise of his glorious justice. And in light of God's glorious justice, we must know that our God is perfectly justified to extend mercy to those whom he will and to withhold it from those whom he will. 
Now again, this is a very sobering and incalculable truth for us. But it is very clear throughout Scripture that it teaches this, as it does right here in our passage. See, all for the glory of God's sovereign power. He has indeed chosen some to be His own beloved people in Christ, in love, but also others to be passed over. But all of this, whether election or passing over, is according to the unsearchable counsel of God's holy will. For in God's providential plan, He purposed to harden Pharaoh's heart in order to display His saving power to not only the Israelites at that time who were utterly defeated and in trauma like we talked about last week, but also before the watching nations in order to display His grace to all men and women. See, friends, this doctrine of divine election and divine passing over then, of course, is again a hard topic, but it's right here in our text, and so I want us to dive into it for a little bit this morning. But as we carefully approach this difficult topic, I also want us to be aware primarily of two foundational and extremely key truths regarding election and passing over or reprobation, if you will. First, that God has a timeless, deep, and unending compassion for each one of us who are in Christ. You cannot be snatched away from Christ's hand if you belong to him. And so it is comforting This is comforting to you if you are in Christ. But second, that in God's goodness and his holiness, he is always and perfectly forever just in his anger and in his wrath against the sin of man. So again, he has a deep love for us in Christ, but he's also just in his wrath towards sin. Now, now the doctrine of election is, again, clearly described in Scripture as this. It is God's choosing a particular people for himself in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's in part why we read from Ephesians 1 earlier, right? In our assurance of pardon. But when we consider these things that are so often hard for us to comprehend, we often end up asking ourselves this provocative question, well then, why why did he ever choose me? Because this is a personal thing. Why did he choose me? Well, the answer to this is so simple. And again, it's right in Scripture. It's because he wanted to, period. He wanted to. See, he wanted to love us, you, me, apart from anything that would have ever been desirable in us from the start. That is real love. He didn't look down the corridors of time as so many teach and reactively select us because of something that he knew that we would do eventually in the course of time. No, he made us, made us to be his own on the basis of his love in Christ and for Christ alone. I love the words of Martin Luther on the same topic, that the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Again, the love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. That is real divine love. See, our election in Christ, as the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, is purposed to bring forth praise, reverence, and admiration toward God, as well as a personal element, humility, diligence, and abundant consolation, comfort, to all of us who sincerely obey the gospel. 
What does it mean to sincerely obey the gospel then? Because it all hinges on that for us, right? Well, it's simply this. To obey the gospel means that you have repented of your sins and that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. It's that simple. Is that you this morning? And if not, will you come to Jesus as the offer of the gospel is put right before you? But while Scripture answers this question, why would God elect people, right, in the first place? It doesn't answer the question, who by name did he choose, positively speaking? See, it's not for us to know exactly who by name will be saved. That's probably a good thing, actually. (laughs) That said, here in our text and elsewhere, like in Romans 9, we do know that Pharaoh himself was certainly not one of those redeemed people of God. Just like Judas, who actively worked against Christ and betrayed him, having been appointed prior to eternal death, Pharaoh was also one such person. He was essentially a Judas in the Old Testament. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, which speak to this direct matter. What shall we we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. Why? That I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, spoiler alert, we will continue to see this perpetual hardening over and over and over again of of Pharaoh's heart by God's own hand in later passages. But for now, I want us to focus not so much on the why or the who kind of questions, but rather the question now of how. That is to say, how are we saved? How are we saved? And again, simply put, we are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and who gave himself as a ransom for us upon the cross. And everyone, and here's the gospel, everyone who calls upon his name will be saved. That is Jesus' offer to you even right now. Ours then, as believers, is not the job of saving anyone because we cannot but it is our job to be responsible. Responsible in proclaiming this same news of salvation in Christ alone to a lost and dying world. For the gospel is, as Romans 1.16 says, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also, intentionally, also to the Greek. Praise God for that, right? So it becomes of our evangelism then. Do we hold back the gospel from our neighbors? Because, well, God will save them if he wants to, right? No. That is a cop-out if there ever was one. See, in God's grand design, he loves to use ordinary women and men like you and I to declare the mysteries of his saving grace in the normal routines and conversations of our lives. See, we, and as we really, believe the gospel of grace all the more, we will become more and more and more emboldened to declare the same saving power of God that we know personally 
among the nations. And friends, for you and I, that starts right here, right here in this building in downtown Lynchburg. And it goes with us wherever we go. So what do we make then of those who do not receive the gospel? Are we to just give up on them? Our loved ones? Our neighbors? Our friends? Our coworkers? <clears throat> not at all. See, the free offer of the gospel is purpose to go forth, whether it be received as the sweet aroma of Jesus himself for what it really is, or whether it is not received by them, and if anything, it's received by them as being a pungent kind of odor that the world in its sin perceives it to be. Of course we are called to be wise, though, and purposeful, and especially sensitive to the Holy Spirit as he leads us in our evangelism, but he often does this through how he's uniquely designed us and our own vocations, our own callings to share the gospel with our friends, neighbors, and relatives throughout the week. See, friends, when the gospel is received, we know that there is fullness of joy. But when the message of Christ is clearly not received, and it's not received over and over and over again, sometimes there is wisdom and just recognizing, hey, this is actually the time to go ahead and dust off our sandals and let our peace return to us. And that's key, by the way. Let our peace return to us. And then move on to the next town. Not giving up, but rather reinvigorated and rejuvenated as we continue to declare this gospel message to another people. But nevertheless, we must continue to preach the gospel to all of creation, you and I. Now, in all honesty, at this point, you may be thinking, Rich, I love Jesus. I certainly would like to tell people about him in theory, but I just don't have the confidence to do this. Maybe I'm too young or I'm too old. I don't have the training. In fact, I don't even know enough people around me. But I don't think it's an accident that God mentions at this point in our passage in Exodus 7 that Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old. But I think God has a sense of humor in that way. See, they were pretty old when God commanded them to go speak to Pharaoh and declare his saving power among the nations. They could have said no, but they couldn't because it came from God. See, God is the one who saves, not man. And ours as disciples of Christ is to simply speak of him and to tell of Christ's sufferings and the subsequent glories and share with our neighbors that repentance for the forgiveness of sins is freely offered to all in Christ's name, as he said to his disciples in Luke 24. So will you be a part of this mission in downtown Lynchburg with me? Which leads us to our third and shorter final point, by the way. See, as we've seen God's glory first and <clears throat> how he prepared his prophets Moses and Aaron, and second in how he hardened Pharaoh's heart, we now see God's glory displayed in a third and final way here in verses 8 through 13. And here we'll see God's glory primarily on display in the showdown of staffs turned into serpents. Under God's command, we see in verse 10, starting here, that Moses and Aaron went back to Pharaoh with full confidence. Those same men who had been defeated the last couple of weeks as we've been looking at this, completely defeated, now with full confidence in the Lord God himself. And when Pharaoh demanded then that they prove themselves by working out a miracle, Aaron just threw down the gauntlet, or rather the staff, and it turned into a serpent. Now, of course, 
logically speaking, this should have satisfied Pharaoh's conscience. He got exactly what he asked for, right? Show me a sign. Okay, there's a sign. But in his hardness of heart, he then said, okay, watch this. We'll do, we'll one-up this. We'll do something special here too. So he summons his wise men and the sorcerers to then mimic, right? Not poyo, but mimeo, mimic. Mimic what God had done through his prophets. Only this time by the power of their quote-unquote secret arts. Probably some kind of satanic influence. In verses 12 through 13, we read this though. Each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But I love this, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. They didn't even have time to be out there very long. It just was like, here it is, boom, gone. (laughs) That's God's power. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So, friends, here is the saving power of God on display. It's bigger than just this passage. There's a theme, there's a motif here. See, here in our passage, God used a serpent uniquely created by him from his staff for such a time as this. A serpent that would utterly consume those staffs turned into serpents. The staffs of the the sorcerers who had been consumed within just mere seconds. But I love this because it echoes the words of Genesis 3. See, whereas Satan, in the form of a serpent, had entered into God's holy garden of Eden at the dawn of time, Moses and Aaron now brought a staff turned into a serpent into Pharaoh's unholy abode. Just as God had promised that the offspring of Eve would eventually one day crush the head of the serpent, so in our passage we see a foreshadowing of this same grander event of redemption, though foreshadowed here in Aaron's staff-turned-serpent, devouring each one of those heads of the evil serpents. Sorry, that was loud. (laughs) Mic problems. (laughs) Now, throughout the course of the Bible, one of the central themes that we see is that of God in the flesh crushing the head of our ancient foe. Our foe who is oftentimes a serpent-like figure throughout the scriptures. Again, in the Garden of Eden, the enemy of God's people, Satan, the adversary by name, is seen in the form of a serpent, right? In the account later on of David and Goliath, The giant who is in a scaly coat of armor, literally scales in the Hebrew, stands as a typology of the same ancient foe, the serpent, with David, God's servant, standing on behalf of his people Israel, vicariously winning and achieving their victory, and then crushing at the end the head of the serpent-like man, Goliath. Later on, the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament The creature Leviathan often represents this same archetype of serpentine power against God's people. And finally, in Revelation, Satan, now represented as a dragon, is bound and defeated once and for all, along with all of God's enemies, as they are finally thrown into that lake of fire, never to harm God's people ever again. And so God was, I believe, foretelling the same message of his saving power here in Exodus 7. See, the Egyptians in Moses' day had their own serpent-like God, known then as Nehebu Kau. Fun word to say, by the way. And the swallowing up of the sorcerer's staves turned into serpents served God's people in that time as a reminder that God would indeed crush the head of their foe. They knew Genesis. They knew the story. The real story. 
But in his hardness of heart, Pharaoh clearly wasn't amused. But you know what, though? For God's people, it was the signs like these that began to fill them with hope once more. Hope in the God who saves and delivers to the uttermost. But this picture of God's saving power is far more than just a reoccurring motif throughout Scripture. See, in the fullness of time, we know that God sent forth His Son to free and liberate His people from their sin. Upon the cross of Christ, the Son, in direct fulfillment of our passage, and so many more like these, the Son crushed Satan under His own feet. In the atoning death of Christ on our behalf, He conquered all of our enemies and His. Yes, Satan may be powerful and deceptive in all of his evil workings against the family of God, but he is powerless before God Almighty. Yes, Satan's attacks on the beautiful bride of Christ may be real and lasting, but he is now a defamed enemy. Yes, all the forces of hell may be rallied against the church on this side of glory, But the gates of hell will never prevail against Christ and his victorious church. So as we conclude, my encouragement to you this morning is simple. It is this. Do not become debilitated by whatever forces of evil stand in your way. As we continue to plant this church, City Presbyterian, for the good of the people here in our own selves and the glory of God, hold fast to hope. Hold fast to hope. For in time, our God will once more display his saving power, even as he has always done among the nations. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that yours truly is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We thank you, O Lord, that we have you as our king, our righteous judge, the only judge over the living and the dead, Jesus. We thank you, O Lord, for the power that is in your name, that by your name nations rise and fall, that by your name men are made back to life. That by your name, O Lord, we go out proclaiming the good news because of the authority of you, our sovereign king. May we be reinvigorated this morning and every single day this week until we come and meet again once more for worship. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.